The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, April 7th, and I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you live from Blastoff Studios in Times Square. As usual here in New York, later in the program, I will be talking to our panel, and we're going to get their thoughts on some uh, last-minute uh, hot topics. We also have a few news items, but first, today it's my pleasure to welcome to the studio a very popular and engaging uh, New York anchorman. Bill Ritter is here. Uh, he is the television news anchor and journalist who began his career in California, where he attended San Diego State University. It wasn't long before New York came calling, though, and he has been associated with both ABC News and local Channel 7 Eyewitness News since 1993. He is currently the anchor of Eyewitness News at 6 and 11 every day. He follows a long list of New York luminaries. I first took notice when he arrived on Good Morning America Sunday, and I've been following Bill's career ever since. Uh, Bill, good morning, and thank you so much for being here today. Well, I'm, I'm just blown away that you've, uh, you, you remember Good Morning America Sunday, <laughs> because I think I four do. people were watching it when we introduced uh, the show back in 1993. I don't know, but it was 93, right? Uh, January 2nd, uh, yeah. first, third, third. It was the first Sunday of, Jan- of, uh, of uh, 1993. I yeah. absolutely remember that, because I said, who is this guy? Because, you know, <laughs> growing up in New York, you're, you're used to your local anchor people and, 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 and personalities and whatever, and I said, well, who's this guy coming in now? Must but, be a California boy. No, it must be a California yeah. guy. So let's, let's, let's go to the beginning. So majoring in accounting and economics doesn't necessarily prepare one for a career as a journalist. Uh, so how did that progression happen for you? Uh, actually, you did begin in print for the L.A. Times, right? I, I didn't begin in the L.A. Times, but I began in print. I became a print reporter okay. in 1972 and uh, <clears throat> uh, eventually went to the Los Angeles Times. It, uh, you know, print was, uh, print was big back then. Yeah, and, uh, big. In fact, when I left uh, the Los Angeles Times to, uh, to go on television, uh, they thought I was crazy. The, t- uh, the Times at the time was, if you if you stayed there, it was called the Velvet Coffin because it was such a secure job. Right, people would stay there for decades, uh, from the moment they got the job till they retired. Right, and people thought I was nuts. <clears throat> Why would you go to some you know thing that could not be around like television news? And instead, you you know you stay here and you stay at the Los Angeles Times. Now, of course, newspapers you know since then have. have come on hard times. The Times has had its own problems, the Los Angeles Times. But it was a great newspaper, and uh, I, I was honored to work for it. So you did investigative pieces for the for the L.A. Times at the time? You know, or? I was a business reporter because I took my economics and accounting uh, knowledge. And, and uh, uh, at the time, in the 80s, you know, you remember, uh, I was a business reporter and focused on white-collar crime because mm-hmm. – there were people running banks and savings and loans that shouldn't have been running hot dog stands. So every, it was during the height of the Reagan administration. They deregulated the entire financial institutions. 
uh, system. And they would close savings and loans. You know, every Friday at uh, at six o'clock or five o'clock, we'd get a call from some savings and loan regulator and say, "We're closing this this savings and loan down. You might want to show up here." Yeah. Um, and it was you know a, a massive system of, of fraud and uh, misusing shareholders' money and depositors' money, and it was a it was a mess. We had. A ton of savings and loans just go out of business. I remember those days. You know, what most viewers don't understand is that to be a credible anchor where, where you are sitting today, you have to have a solid background in reporting. In fact, your business and in investigative reporting uh, earned you four Emmys. Tell us about that. I mean, again, most people think that these are glamour jobs, just like a real estate agent. You know, you show lovely $10 million apartments. They don't understand that to be credible on the anchor desk, you have to have some kind of solid reporting background, investigative uh, background to really do your job well, my opinion. Uh, but tell, tell us about that. You know, I, I, when I talk to uh, young people and college students and journalism students, I, I say, you know, do not want to be an anchor. Uh, I never wanted to be an anchor. I mean, it was the farthest thing from my mind. I mean, it happened by accident. Uh, and I didn't go looking for it, uh, both at Good Morning America and at WABC. Did not go looking for those jobs. And... You know, you want to be uh, a, a storyteller, most importantly, curious, a good writer, try to be a good writer, good communicator, and you want to be a reporter. Uh, curious and being a reporter go together. I, I think without that, you have just with the, the talking head syndrome. And I, I, I tell people, you know, some kids will say, oh, I want to be an anchor like you. I say, well, you know what? Don't, don't do that. Be a reporter. Mm-hmm. Figure out how to communicate, write stories, be curious, follow up on your curiosity, ask questions. We are given license to ask questions. Uh, are, would we... Would we be reporters? Um, are we reporters because we're curious or are we curious because we're reporters? I, I don't know. But whatever, we have a license to ask you know, questions uh, within certain bounds of dignity, I guess. But, but we can ask questions and try to dig to what we think is going to lead to the truth, whatever that might be. It's interesting how you use the term storyteller because you can tell the difference, I think, when you're watching somebody on the air who's telling a story or reporting a story. You can separate, I believe, the good from the bad. And some who are just out there doing whatever they're doing but not necessarily telling a story, you get more involved with the storytellers as a viewer because the story then makes more sense. You started at the network and then you quickly moved to local Channel 7. Was that something you wanted or didn't you see that coming? Well, that was another, uh, you know... Because you said before you didn't want to do whatever, but you just kind of ended up there. It wasn't so quickly. Uh, It it was about seven years later, six years later. And I I got a call one day from the news director at Channel 7, uh, and I was working for 2020 at the time. And he goes, uh, and I didn't know who he was. He's since a very good friend of mine. But I I had no idea his name popped up on the caller ID from an internal number. Uh, He said he had already cleared cleared what he was about to say with the president of the network and the president of the news division. And uh, they wanted me, they thought that I would be the guy who could replace Bill Butel, who's mm. of course the famous uh, legendary 35-year anchorman at Channel 7. Yeah. Uh, and I said, what? You know, I had no idea. And uh, he goes, yeah, come, let's go, let's go to lunch. So we talked and uh, uh, Bill was still anchoring both shows, but they had no one at, at, in line to sort of be his successor. So uh, I started off on the weekends, only doing weekends which meant I worked uh, Monday through Friday at ABC and Saturday and Sunday at WABC. That went on for a year and a half. I didn't know what day it was, seven days a week. But it was really it was a chance for me to see, do I like this? Do they like me? Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Butel, uh, as, as you know, gracious always, <clears throat> when I was hired, he says, I'm glad they picked you. And it was <laughs> a, a great mentorship that he offered. Uh, and it, it, about three or four years later, he... He retired uh, slowly. First the 11, he got off the 11, and then he got off right. the, uh, the 6. And that's – I stayed – I kept doing ABC News stories. I still do them every once in a while, but not much. Uh, and uh, this is 
I just can't imagine having a better job than anchoring the news at the biggest station in the city and in the country. And in the country, yeah. it, it's uh, and you do it well. So, you know, I remember some of your earlier stories for 2020 and other ABC programming uh, at the time, and they ran the stories ran the gamut from lighthearted to heartwarming to deadly serious. Yeah. Uh, are you still filing reports for ABC? I mean, you just said a minute ago, once in a while, but do, are you still doing that? Do you really want to continue to do that at some point? You know, I, I think it's when it when it's appropriate and when it, it moves me. Yes, it's because it's a great national platform. We did a story uh, last year on the boom in prison gardens. I did it for WABC because there were there were eighteen prison gardens sprouted uh, in Connecticut, and we did a story uh, for ABC News uh, about the prison garden that has started at San Quentin. And what we found was that around the country, for a variety of reasons, wardens, community activists, uh, prisoners themselves are starting gardens like they used to back when we only had a quarter million prisoners in the country instead of 2.2 million. Um, and they're growing their own food uh, and doing something that they've never done before, and that is nurturing something, planting something, nurturing it, seeing it grow, and then harvesting it. Mm. And for these guys, most of them are guys, 99% of the guys, um, they've never done that before. And it is the one form of rehabilitation that prisons are now instituting, and it's working. And the recidivism rate among those who participate in garden programs, sometimes down to zero. So it's just really working. So I did that story for ABC. And that resonated. We also did one more story, as long as you ask. On yes, please. Two years ago on The Conversation, we called it The Conversation, two-part series with Diane Sawyer and me, um, asking people to really think about if they could control this, because we're living longer, what would you like death to look like? How would you want to be cared for? Do you want them to take heroic actions? Have you talked to your loved ones about this? If you should all of a sudden go into a coma, do they know what's going to happen? And it was a moving, amazingly moving series because it made families really dig deep and say, what do I really want? And face this prospect that Mm. we're all going to go through because we're living longer. 70% of us say we want to die at home peacefully. 70% 70% of us, the truth is, die in a hospital. In a hospital, home. exactly, and sometimes out of our control. On the heels of that, you've reported on the Columbine shootings, TWA Flight 800, O.J. Simpson, of course, Oklahoma City. Is there a particular story that you covered through the years for either Channel 7, you know, White Witness News or ABC that has affected you to, to, to this day? You any, know, I, partic- I, any particular story? I, I think all of them affected me, um, but I, I, I think it's it just you cannot – top for uh, horrific ramifications uh, and just pure sorrow, uh, the 9-11 attacks. And you can't have been in New York especially and seen what happened and smell the acrid, Mm -hmm. you know, smoke for weeks. Yeah. uh, You were here. Um, You know, that just story that, 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 that just swamps all the others because of it. So the powerfullness of it and how, 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 how horrible it was. I remember horrible. those days. I mean, I absolutely was down there when it was happening, and I worked in a building across the street, and so I was kind of running through the battlefield and trying to get to survival mm-hmm. like a lot of other people were. And I remember coming home and putting on, on the news, and you can see you know, how horrified you all were with just trying to report that story. And that was another question I wanted to ask you. When you get to these heart-wrenching stories sometimes, and we, in, you know, in this world today, they, happen, they seem to happen a lot more than, than they used to. How do you deal with that? I mean, the heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching story sometimes, and you, know, you can see it in your faces when you're reporting the news. How do you get through that? Because I think myself, if I, if I needed to sit there and look at a camera and, and really you know, report this particular story, I don't know sometimes that I'd be able to hold up. How difficult is that for you guys to do? 
I think sometimes difficult, although although we are, um, you know, charged in our mission to, uh, I think, to inform, uh, walk through the process mm. with our viewers. Uh, I don't think that they expect us to not be moved. Right. Um, I'm moved when a child is hurt or abused or dies. Uh, that uh, that gets to me. Um, I don't think that our viewers mind that that happens, but I also think they expect us to to be a calming force and help help them understand it. So we have a multiple set of rules and roles that we have to follow um, intuitively. Yeah. You know, we want to inform. We want to we want to walk people through this together mm-hmm. and and let them know though. And I think I do let people know that I'm one of them. I'm a citizen of New York. Exactly. I feel this just like they do. I'm a parent. Something happens to a kid. I feel it just like they do. Mm-hmm. You know, I have siblings. I had parents. I, I, I am feeling this emotion just like they are. But I don't think they want us to, you know, all cry or break down on the air. But I think that to show emotion is not a bad thing. No, it's expect not. That. It's not. And it, it, it lends to the, the credibility of the story. And you can see when you come back from watching, you know, a reporter, you know, giving a story. And when you come back to air, you can see sometimes in the faces that it, 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 it's touching home or it, yeah. it's hitting home. If you can go back in time, are there any stories that you wished you had reported that you missed out on the opportunity for whatever reason? <laughs> you were on vacation. Every, you were not here. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. I thought you meant, did we blow it? And, no, and, no, and no. Should we have been harder on certain things? Um, no, it's like an actor saying, no, I don't want that role. Then all of a sudden it becomes an Academy Award winning performance. And it's like, wow, I should have taken that role. You know, uh, there, uh, I, I suspect there are plenty. Um, there, there was one um, I've, I've never regretted not being, uh, you know, coming to local news. Cause I think that it, you, we, after ha- done, doing national news, um, you connect on a lo- with local reporters and the local audience much more intimately than you, I ever did with yeah. uh, uh, good morning America or 2020. All those stories we did were very powerful and we would hear from people. But when you're local, you really hear from people because you're touching them in their neighborhoods and where they live. Um, but I do remember feeling twangs of something. I was on vacation when Katrina hit. And, you know, there was nothing new I could have done uh, as the anchor at WABC. We sent a reporter down. We sent Jim Dolan down. We right. covered it very well. Um, Jim is great. Jim is great. Uh, and, but but I – so there's nothing I could have done uh, here. But if I had been uh, full-time at the network, I would have gone there. And I felt – so one time I felt like, oh, gosh, I wish – I really want to be there and, and cover the, what was happening because it was so horrible what was happening to those people. And yeah. really, you know, the issues that were raised by how they were treated and everything else uh, – I wanted to be part of that story. And, but it's the only time that I ever felt like that. It was such a national story, too, regardless of where it took place. It was just such a right. national story. You know, you mentioned Bill Butel earlier, but who in, in the earlier days were, were mentors to you in the business, if any? You know, coming up, you know, from, you know, local stations in California, print print journalism, you know, ABC, Eyewitness News. Who who might be some of your mentors? That's a good question. That's in, a great question. You know, we all, if we all look at, at, at growing up and our careers, no matter where you are in your career, you, no one gets anywhere without somebody. Absolutely. Right? Without somebody. I think back uh, to my very first news director, Ron Meyer, uh, in San Diego. I was working at the LA Times, and I got a, 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 one of those, it was back then where you have the little memos, while you were out, you know, and the secretary took a note, and I was out at a meeting. I come back from a story. I certainly remember those. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it said, you know, Ron Meyer Channel, it was K, K, uh, KCST, KNSD in San Diego, and I, I didn't know who he was. <clears throat> he called me, he says, hey, I, I want to put you on television. I was a reporter at the Times. And I'm like, really? No, no, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, and I just said, no, thank you very much. And I never even met him. And then he kept calling back, like once a week. And finally, over a period of a month or so, uh, we met, and 
So if he hadn't taken this wild shot chance at me, I, I don't think that would ever happen. I think that, you know, the people that I look up to uh, that I was uh, cutting my teeth with, I think, you know, Ron, uh, uh, Charlie Gibson, um, I think was, uh, you know, just the, the best anchor I've ever worked with. Charlie and, Gibson was amazing. Yeah. And I uh, still am, am friendly with him and in contact with him and he's doing well in retirement. Um, but I would have stayed a reporter for Charlie on Good Morning America forever. There was nothing better than having Charlie throw to you live in the field. And I could have done that for the rest of my life. It was an honor to do that. He was so good. He really taught me so much about anchoring, both by example and uh, by lessons. Uh, Bill Butel was very good to me as well. Um, I came aboard, uh, you know, after his heyday. But um, he was so kind and so gentle and such a gentleman on the air. I, uh, you know, as you can see, I'm in a T-shirt and a, and a, and a windbreaker. <laughs> Bill, Bill would have been in a... Pre- beautiful suit with a pocket square yeah. and cufflinks yeah. at nine o'clock in the morning to be interviewed by you in this studio that's yeah. on radio. There's no question. We have to take a break, but first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with Bill Ritter here, local anchorman in New York City for Eyewitness News on Channel 7. Bill, what do you think is the most challenging aspect of your job, given all those stories you've reported, you know, your day-to-day leadership at local Channel 7? But what is the most challenging aspect of your day-to-day job? Hmm. I think there's a couple. Uh, I I think by far the most important thing is is to uh, figure out what it is that is news. Uh, You know, there's a huge percentage of our audience. And this is going to be kind of hard to believe, but it's true that even in this day of the day of the Internet and all the accessibility we have to information, there's a large percentage of our population in New York and of our audience, most importantly, that get their only news from Channel 7, WABC TV, yeah. Eyewitness News. And that is a huge responsibility. I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm one of them. You know, I know you were you do the Internet, so you do get information somewhere I, else. I do, but, I do. But, but for TV viewing, it's it's Eyewitness News for sure. Well, I, well we appreciate that. Uh, so I, I take that as a – and I don't want to sound sappy about this because it can sound so sappy. But that's a huge responsibility mm-hmm. that I take very seriously. And while it's a great job and, you know, uh, it's just very exciting and wonderful and everything – every day is different and new – 
That is the thing that is over my head at all times, that people are relying on us to tell the truth, to be right, Mm -hmm. not necessarily first. Right Right is more important than being first. Uh, And to do it with uh, some respect and dignity for for the people we cover and for the audience. Um, Because, you know, the, the... we can talk all day, the rest of the show, on, you know, well, why aren't you covering good news? It's always bad news. You know, there are lessons to be learned in bad news. Uh, there are lessons to be learned in good news. Absolutely. But, but what makes news is not altogether pretty sometimes, and or most of the time. And, um, you know, I don't let my five-year-old watch the show unless we're doing nice weather with Lee. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that, that hangs over me. The most important is that the second is sort of keeping up with all the fast changes. You know, when we were talking about Bill Butel, when Bill was here, there were three television stations with news. They had 30 to 35 to 40% of the audience at any given time. Absolutely. You know, it's so bifurcated. It's so divided. Now the pie is so divided. Yeah. So how do you keep up with that? We are still television news is still the biggest by far of any other outlet. It's going to stay like that. It's not as huge as it once was. Yeah. But So how do you deal with it? How do we use the Internet? How do we use social media? Uh, all those are questions that are challenges us for us every day. Well, I was going to get to, get to that in a minute, but my other question to you is, so how do you, do you guys get a chance to influence what's on the news program every day? Uh, do you work, I guess, with the news director or, or the producers and say, hey, I think this is a valid story or, hey, I think we should not do this? Do you have any influence on what gets out on the air uh, putting, each day? Putting the, the, the shows together is a, a work in progress, a team effort. And uh, ultimately, I mean, the news director has the say over it, but it, 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 she tries to have a consensus building operation throughout the day and everyone can participate. And if you don't, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, exactly. Right, right. So on the heels of that, take us through what you know what a typical day is. I mean, I was in the studio once with you guys when you were delivering the news, so it's at the end of the process and you were on camera. But take us through, you know, what what do the viewers think goes on behind the scenes, you know, when Bill Ritter shows up every day or one of the local reporters show up every day. What is the day like in the stu- in the newsroom? Well, when I show up in the newsroom, all of a sudden the people who are working very quietly say, oh, God, it's going to get noisy now because <laughs> I tend to talk a lot um, uh, and be boisterous. Uh, but as as the senior person there, I guess I, I, I've earned that. Uh, uh, I would say that it, it, it is a continual process of how to sort of, you know, make the sausage. Um, uh, and it, it's not altogether pretty. Uh, and some of it is, is put together by logistics. Oh, we, we don't have a shooter there. We, I mean, a photographer. We don't have a photographer there. We don't have a reporter on the crew on the ground. We, we're not going to be able to show that. So now the viewer may not know that, of course. We don't right. tell them all that. But, but um, it is a... Uh, it's a run and gun process. I mean, we are, these people are hustling all the time. So it is very fast. It is important that we stop and take a deep breath and be a little contemplative sometimes and say, okay, so what's really going on here? Uh, that's a challenge. Uh, the day st- starts off by, you know, we have a, a, a when I, I try to get in between 1230 and one o'clock and uh, the, they're dividing up what they think the stories will be for the four five and six. Um, I, I anchor the six. So I, I say, well, why isn't the six getting that? Um, and they, they go, go back, go back to eating your lunch. Um, the, uh, uh, and then the, the day evolves and things happen in this right. city. Things happen. There might be a train derailment. There might be an accident. There might be a, a, a some sort of delay on New Jersey transit that affect people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, stories that affect people, our mission is to tell people what's happening. And mass transit is a big thing. Weather's a big thing. What's happening to kids in school is a big thing. Absolutely. What's happening in healthcare is a big thing. How do you narrow all that down to a small newscast? It's a broad a responsibility because there's just so much that can and does in this town happen every day. And then things happen 
in the world that this town is interested in because mm-hmm. it's a big city. There are 21 million people in the tri-state area. Yeah. So there'll be a massacre in Kenya. Yeah. Or there'll be a deal with Iran. Or there'll be terrorists arra- arrested, alleged terrorists arrested in Queens or Brooklyn. <clears throat> Those are all stories that are very big, and how do you play them? And how do you fit them sometimes? Mm -hmm. You touched on it before, but, you know, technology has changed, has evolved everything, including the news business. Do you see future technology advancements really continuing to affect the way TV is broadcast? I mean, you know, you have have cable. You said it before. There's 24-hour cable news networks now. There's the Internet. uh, There's more radio news presence changing the face of local, you know, TV news, but still important, still out there. Do you think technology going forward is going to affect TV news, the delivery of TV news even more? No question. Uh, I don't see how it can't. I mean, don't you? Yeah. No, I I do. And it's amazing to me just watching the broadcast, you know, all the years that I watch and take weather, for example, you know, what Lee does today, Sam could didn't do, you know, four years ago or five years ago, for example. Uh, how much better can we get? I mean, because I think what, what you all do today seems like it's enough. Well, I think we can always get better, uh, and I think that's that's the goal is to always get better and improve ourselves. But I, I do think that, that the ability for people to get information at any time on these devices that we all have yeah. uh, perhaps use too much mm-hmm. and put our heads in them too much um, I, I think will continue to change. I don't believe, I really don't believe that that the average New Yorker or American – wants to design their own newscast on the on the web and that we will become uh, a defunct form of information dissemination. I don't mm-hmm. believe that. I don't either. Um, I do believe there will always be a, uh, an opportunity for local news to shine. I don't know how, how many stations there may be in the future, um, which is why it's it's good to continue to be number one, uh, which we are, and I, I'm happy to, to try to keep to keep doing that. Um, but, I, but I do feel that that's, that's not going to change it will diminish to some degree, and I, and by diminish I mean the television may not be the platform, the or the, the biggest platform we we disseminate the information on. Right. It's going to be in a lot of different forms, right. uh, and I think we will get a lot of our news from some sort of handheld mobile devices. They will be the the future of of how people get information. I think uh, as much as television in the future, but between now and five years from now. You know, I just – I don't see it happening that quickly. Right. Are you still writing your daily column behind the news of Bill Ritter, which previews the 11 o'clock edition of the uh, Eyewitness News program? And that, that that used to get sent out via email, correct? It, it did. And, yeah. and we did a very uh, hard-nosed, honest, uh, mm-hmm. uh, radical candor study of yeah. what was happening. And I had uh, several thousand subscribers. It was very nice. But the, we found that email now – and this is one way that it is changing – when I did it, I started it in 2002, uh, and I think it was the only local anchor to do a daily blog. Um, it was the only, only, only one. It was mm-hmm. one of a kind, and I think people were very excited about it. Email is not the best way to disseminate information. Yeah. And uh, we had our Internet people take did a very important study, I think, for me, and showed me that the numbers, there were a lot of people subscribing to it, but not everyone was always opening their yeah. email. Yeah. So why not take that blog and put it on Facebook? instead where you can have better interaction and you're not having people just email you back and that's what we do now i put and i it's it's actually it's worked it's been much more interactive and you know i can throw a stink bomb a political stink bomb into sometimes I, and, and <laughs> it, i've i've seen i i see the facebook stuff sometimes <laughs> 
It's funny. So that's where, that's where it is now. Let's talk about the annual Operation 7 Save a Life campaign, which just kicked off, I believe, in January. Yeah. Uh, and you're the host of that campaign since right. its inception at WABC. You say it's one of the most important things you do for Eyewitness News, and it's especially significant this year as the fire department celebrates 150th anniversary. Tell us about that campaign because it is very important. You know, it's a really great uh, what I call private-public partnership. Uh, yeah. WABC uh, uh, with with great partners, the fire department of New York City, and then all the volunteer fire departments in Long Island and New Jersey, uh, partnering with a Home Depot, Toyota, uh, the Wild Cornell Burn Center at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and most importantly, the Kita Corporation, which has over the last, since we started this in 1999, donated more than three quarters of a million smoke detectors to people who couldn't afford it. We put out fifty to 60,000 every year, give out through the fire department and because of Kitta, 50 or 60,000 a year yeah. to people who wow. couldn't afford it. And we have saved lives with fire deaths, civilian fire deaths uh, in New York city now at record lows since they started keeping records. It has not been lower. And I think that, you know, we, we, we've seen Vince, we've seen in New York this year for your viewers who are uh, your listeners who are uh, in other parts of the country, we've had tons of deaths, saved yeah. too many deaths where smoke detectors could have saved lives. In Brooklyn, Brooklyn last month, seven children were killed because the parents put a smoke detector in the basement and they were on the second on floor. On the second floor, and, yeah. And just awful. So if we can save one life, it's just really well worth it. And, you know, the, the kid gives out all those smoke detectors is just unbelievable, just, ma- just magnificent for me. Right, we've got about a minute left. Yeah. I have to ask you this question because if I don't, my staff will be all over me. You are working with two of the most beautiful women on the anchor desk in New York. How are you so lucky? Sade and Liz, beautiful, talented, smart. You know, you guys do a great job. Your weather team, I mean, your sports people, everybody. How, how am you, I so lucky? How are you so lucky? This Cl- is a great, clean living. Great... <laughs> Plenty of coffee and a lot of exercise. I, <laughs> I am very lucky. Uh, they're not, and, and you know what? Uh, the, the important thing about that is, yes, they are just incredibly stunning looking, but but they are stunning people, and uh, and they're they're very good reporters. And they actors, are, and that's the main thing. They are. Uh, people look at at yeah, obviously they're they're beautiful women, uh, but uh, but they're they're close friends and and really good people and very good journalists. They really are, and and for me, you know, personally, when I watch the broadcast every day, and, and usually you know uh, both six and and at eleven, you feel the warmth that comes from the set. You feel the warmth from the people who are reporting and talking to you over the television, and I think more so than. I spot check sometimes, like some of the other channels, yeah. and it, it, it's just a completely different ball game. Uh, so, kudos to you guys and your team. Thank you so much for coming on the program today. You're an inspiration to all of your viewers and to us news junkies. So please continue. <laughs> My pleasure. We will be right back after these messages, guys. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. And I wanted to say thank you once again to Bill Ritter. Anchorman here at Local Channel 7, Eyewitness News in New York. Always a great talk and always great to see him. Um, so little news items here. First quarter Manhattan market reports are out. And the main thing we've gleaned from them this week is that New York City is still a playground for the rich, but the super rich may be headed elsewhere to play. Demand for super high-end properties has calmed down in favor of the middle high-end properties, in which, the two mil- which is under the $2 million range, and those are white hot. This may have something to do with the fact that super high-end properties have been uh, built up like crazy. All you have to do is take a walk down 57th Street, and you'll see why. Uh, The Carlisle Group and Gary Barnett Extel's Development Corporation are planning to build a 36-story residential tower at 10 Lincoln Square. This according to permits filed with the city this week. That building will hold 288 apartments spanning 413,000 square feet of residential space and have 1,400 square feet of commercial space located in the ba- in the basement. The developers purchased that vacant lot at the corner of West 59th Street and 12th Avenue in 2005 for $50.3 million. And while pr- uh, resale prices set new records in the first quarter of this year, the overall number of sales as well as prices of new condos showed a sharp decline. According to the Wall Street Journal, the median price of a resale condo in the first quarter increased by 9.8% to $1.4 million compared to the same time a year ago. The median price of a resale co-op went up 4% to $725,000. New York City approved construction on 20,329 units across 1,415 buildings last year, representing a huge increase over pre-recession levels, but still not quite enough to meet Mayor Bill de Blasio's Uh, housing goals within 10 years. According to New York Building Congress report released today, the total for 2014 is an 11% jump over the number of units approved in 2013 and more than three times as many units as the 5,900 that were approved in 2009. Uh, Last week's explosion of a building in the East Village could lead to criminal charges, according to the New York City officials here. Investigators uh, with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office are now fully engaged a law enforcement source told ABC News the other day. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office declined to comment. More on that in the coming weeks. Uh, But two city officials told ABC News that investigators are now pursuing reports from tenants that building management encouraged them to report gas problems to the landlord rather than to Con Edison. I mean, it's just unbelievable to me. New York's largest residential brokerage, Douglas Element, announced its expansion to Los Angeles back in 2013. Now it's putting down real estate routes with a West Coast headquarters in Beverly Hills. The brokerage recently inked a 10-year lease for a two-floor, 11,000-square-foot space at 150 El Camino Drive. The infamous and mysterious Michael Schvo has remained tight-lipped about his project at 100 Varick Street in Soho, but thanks to the project's first rendering, we can now see that it will involve, it, it will involve glass, glass, and more glass. A new teaser site dubs the, the project Soho Tower, according to Curb, and Schvo and his partners bought the 20,000-square-foot assemblage site at 100 Varick Street for $130 million last January. 
Uh, John Bon Jovi is rocking his way out of 158 Mercer Street, having finally sold his duplex penthouse in the building, which we reported here on the show when he listed it for $37.5 million. The New York Times reports that the musician purchased the Soho pad in 2007 for $24 million and first listed it in 2013 for $42 million before chopping the price several times. And finally, Brooklyn may have been hashtag ready for Hillary for a while now, but Hillary Clinton is finally ready for Brooklyn. The likely Democratic nominee is making good on rumors that her imminent presidential campaign will be headquartered in Brooklyn. Her team just signed a lease for 80,000 square feet at 1 Pierpont Plaza. The Brooklyn Heights office building has been marketed as modern offices, Brooklyn cool, and Clinton's team will occupy the first two floors of that building. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Good morning, morning. Vince. Joining Good me morning. now is, is my team. We have Perul Brombat from CORE. We have Niall Lundgren, Rachel Altschuler from Douglas Elliman, Phil Horgan, LeaseBreak.com, and Deborah Hoffman from town. How is everybody today? Good. Great. Good to see you again. Great. A little gloomy today. Yesterday yeah. was fantastic. I think it's just teasing us with the weather. I, I was coming. thinking yeah. about that this morning. I'm How do we it. go from, you know, a glorious day yesterday? Amazing to really kind of gloom and doom. I walked out of the house and it was uh, spritzing and about to rain and just kind of, you know, just gloomy. <laughs> How do we do that? Are we New Yorkers? Are we really used to that kind of stuff? I'm we, not sometimes. April we flowers, bring, we start April showing flowers bring May flowers, right? Well, this is what they say, and I'm hoping to see those flowers very soon. <laughs> okay, some topics of discussion for today. So if there's anyone coming out on top right now in Manhattan luxury real estate, uh, it's the guy in the middle, and we just reported this a minute ago. In simple terms, affordable luxury refers to top-tier property beginning at around 1400 or 1500 per square foot and going to 2500 per square foot. This figure marks the entry level of Manhattan's high-end market, a pricing arena that was previously underserved, if not overlooked, by developers. Now, however, the segment is flourishing. Why is that? 1,400 to 1,500 a foot going up to 2,500 a foot. What's that about? I think developers should be looking at this market. You said that it was underserved by developers. Correct. Now, I know that buying from a development standpoint, you have to underwrite the deal and where do you buy it at a buildable square footage. So they have to be looking, I mean, like the Michael Schwo, for example, he paid a crazy number on a per buildable square foot because he's trying to cater to the super luxury. But there's this whole segment of the market that's completely just, just you know, not there and developers aren't able to capitalize on that. And I think when we're seeing these price points at the fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hundred $1,600 a foot, um, for for some of these projects, that's that's they're going to go off the shelves immediately, you know, and the, that's something that's been underserved. And it needs to be served now. I, I totally yes. agree, and we've been talking about that, you know, for most of the end of last year. And I have to wonder though, because the higher end, the Uber end that we always talk about, it really has slowed down a bit. So mm-hmm. what happens going forward with these developers who still were building to that, you know, that price point and to that person? What happens? You know, does that just stall? Because you're certainly not going to lower the price of those apartments. And and the people in this 1,400 to 2,500 per square foot will never really be able to afford that. So, yes, I agree that we've we've overlooked that market for a long time. And I'm glad that we're there. But what really happens to that Uber higher end market? That's a very interesting uh, question. I'm dying to see what's going to happen. I really don't know. Do those, do those, I envision sometimes, do those big penthouses just come tumbling out of the sky and, and just, I mean, dropping down? And I mean, I think 
but I think you mentioned, you know, you don't think prices will go down, but I think they they may have to, <clears throat> you know. I think, uh, I mean, they have before. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's history for that. When developers come out too high, they have to lower the prices. They could do things like offer to pay the closing costs. Um, you know, there's some incentives they could offer. They could throw in a free storage unit. You're going to probably see a lot more of that kind of thing, I think, going forward. Or maybe depending how much the market stalls or for how long and how scared developers get, they may start resizing the apartments like they did in the Great Depression. Interesting. That's what I, just, I was thinking might, yeah, I just might possibly it. happen. Do you think so? Maybe. I think it depends where the market goes, how long they're stuck with these apartments that are not moving. And yes, they can well, still also, sell I mean, the you, glamour. Go ahead, Peru. Oh, so if you look at the suburb market, um, you know, there was, I think, about 15 years ago, where there were these like houses that were like nine and 10,000 square feet, like huge homes. And those homes in those markets have just been sitting around in the last five years or so uh, because there was such an overabundance of those. And really, you know, as lifestyles change, people don't even want homes that are that big. So I think it really is very interesting to see what's going to happen with where the price points are on buildable square foot footage, like Mal was saying and how these developers are going to be able to make their money back. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, there is a lot of money that it flows into New York City market from international markets. And there is people, I mean, there are people with a lot of money in the world. However, um, if you look at the fashion industry, you know, at the, ultimately the, the highest upper, upper cut crust luxury market tends to suffer because there at the end of the day just isn't as many people in that segment that can, you know, that, that who can afford that sort of stuff. And so I think really it comes down to being able to cater to the highest part of the bell curve or like the mid market. And, um, you know, as you've said, you know, that market has been so underserved here, but it, it is a very interesting conversation and none of us can predict the future, but, um, but I think that it's a really important conversation to have here. Um, but, to, to echo what Deborah was saying, I mean, it really is at some point, it makes us wonder if, it, if these price points are sustainable and how many people are truly looking to buy in that market segment. All right. So a co-op board president is on a power trip and has even intimidated some board members. This is a, a really funny situation here. Another resident was interested in the position, but the president claims she never received her ballot and has a right to stay on anyway. She has also tried to purchase items without board approval and refused a same-sex couple who wanted to purchase in the building. She seems to be unfair in her approach to incidents in the building. How can shareholders proceed to get this person off the board? We're all smiling because we all have many stories that we hear every day. But seriously, you know, there are power mongers, for lack of a better word, that that really kind of, you know, do these things in co-op buildings and wreak so much havoc. What is the process by which the remainder of the board and or the, the residents or shareholders of these buildings, what could they do? It's to, actually to very us? easy. I know a few buildings who have done this, one in particular where the board was racist, especially in their questions when interviewing a new uh, prospective purchaser. And the building in general, every person has to get angry enough. When they get angry enough, what they do is they organize. And I've seen this. And you'll get four or five people representing everyone, and they will door knock. And they will go to every single apartment and explain the situation. They usually will have statistics in hand 
and show what the problems are, showing how it's devaluing their investment. And I have seen entire boards thrown out of buildings on a vote this way. But the bottom line is you got to get angry enough to get people organized. And just to add to what Deborah said, so every, I guess it's the bylaws or the proprietary lease mm-hmm. is going to state what you need to do in order to uh, vote out a board member. And, you know, some of them are if two-thirds of the shareholders want to uh, vote this way, then they can they can do so. So you have to go to the bylaws and the proprietary lease and see what the rules of the, rules of the building are first. That would be a first step. And uh, – and then, like Deborah said, organize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, we all have probably lots of stories that we can, you know, talk about with regard to these types of situations and co-ops in particular. And just for the listening audience out there who isn't familiar with the way buildings are run here in New York City, co-ops, for example, have boards uh, and so do condos. And they really pretty much run the house rules and create any and all new uh, rules and regulations for a building. And they also sit on top of a committee that approves purchasers into a building or not. So unlike the rest of the U.S., unlike the rest of the world, we here in New York go through a a, a very strong scrutiny process, financial and otherwise, to get into these buildings. Condos a little easier, but uh, co-ops very difficult. So when we talk about boards, these are the people who say yes or no to an applicant, and these are the people who tell you once you're already in the building that uh, you can't do something or that you can. We have to take a break. We will be back after these messages. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and I'm talking to Perul Brombat, now Lundgren, Rachel Altschuler. Phil Horrigan and Deborah Hoffman. Before we get into the next uh, topic, I just wanted to say to the listening audience and to my panel here, thank you all. We had our March ratings reported um, end of last week. And I have to tell you, every time I look at these numbers, I'm just completely blown out of the water. And we are really sailing out there in the Internet world around the world. The numbers are incredible, have been growing since day one. We celebrated one year, I think, two or three weeks ago. So we continue to move in the right direction. And I got to say, you know, I'm, I'm the host of this program, but people stop me all the time and ask about each and every one of you, including 
people I don't even know. They mention you all by name. <laughs> so you know what? There's something to be said for, you know, being a mm-hmm. cast member or a panel member on, a, on an internet radio show. So my hat's off to everybody. Thank you to Voice America, and thank you most importantly to the listeners out there for keeping us on the air. Amazing. That's true. Thank you. So real estate may be made of bricks and mortar, but the process of finding real estate is now moving almost entirely into the virtual world. I mean, I was just talking to Bill Ritter about how it's how the virtual world or technology, better said, has evolved the news business significantly. In the last few years, the marketplace for real estate-related mobile apps from apartment listings to renovation tools to mortgage calculators has grown at an even faster clip. But which ones are actually helpful and which ones just clutter up your smartphone. I mean, we all have smartphones, whether they're iPhones or, or whatever. You know, we all have a variety of apps, and a lot of us in the business have some, some real estate apps. But, you know, are there some apps out there that, that listeners or, or, or you know, um, consumers could use that are better than others, or are they just all cluttering up our, our smartphones? I think it depends on if you're talking about rentals versus sales. Uh, for the rental world, and Jill would speak definitely more on this, um, there, there are so many websites, and I, I feel like they are helpful, especially if it's a no-fee listing. And I would say there's about 10 to 15 that I use. With sales, there's only about two that I trust. Um, and I would think that you would all agree that uh, some of them are uh, mostly used for other agents to work buyers and to bring certain people to your listings because the buyers don't understand technology. And in some cases, they think that when they reach out to the broker whose face is on somebody else's listing, that they're reaching out to the listing agent. So I think there is a lot of confusion in the sales world for technology. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, I was going to say that. I mean, I think I think it's really hard for people to disseminate what's good and what's not. So there's they're just downloading apps. I mean, you know, for me, I love technology. I'm always trying to find out the most efficient ways to uh, to work the business. And I've downloaded a number of apps. Some of them are completely nonsense, and you're just like you're wasting your time, or there's just redundant information or stale information. So you know, for somebody who's coming from Kansas and they think that oh, let's download this app, you know, it's it's really hard. I think this can this is this is actually a great topic, and I think it'd probably be even longer of a segment. So I'm, you know, uh, I'm curious what other people think about it because I could talk for a little while. But um, you know, I think like when uh, it's a good good thing that Rachel mentioned the differentiation between rentals and sales, um, and I think just in it's general, a big difference, yeah, yeah it, yeah, it is a big difference. I know a lot of companies have their own proprietary apps, um, but in general, I think you know, Street Easy, if you're specifically looking at sales, you know, is terrific. I use it all the time, both for rentals and sales. Um, and, you know, it's very helpful to have an app where you can kind of be on the fly and look at your phone and, and you know, maneuver when you're with clients. And Street Easy has been my go-to. Yeah, we actually are going to do a, a whole half a segment or, or a full show, rather, on, on the use of some of these apps because I think I'm, I'm also into technology and I think that it's, it's done nothing but help us in this business. And certainly the use of these smartphones even just for email and texting and, and whatever else that we do in our business of real estate. I mean, I know people in other industries that don't really need these phones as much as we do, but this is really our mobile office. I remember years ago when I was still working in technology, somebody came out with this bright idea, let's create a mobile office. And what does that really mean? Well, all these years later, we are really at that with these smartphones and our iPads and whatever else. Laptops, I mean, not many people carry laptops around anymore when we're out showing, to get onto Street Easy to, to, to verify a comp or, or a price or something else that you might have missed, you know, that you want to show your client. So these apps do come in handy. 
Here's another one. This is uh, <laughs> this is one only uh, only a New York story, and of course, there's only there's lots of only New York stories. But there have been many articles written lately about laundry room etiquette, and I have to tell you something. I really laughed out loud when I was. I mean, all over the research was laundry room <laughs> etiquette last week. Unbelievable. Such drama down in the basement where these rooms reside. Again, for those listeners out there who don't live in New York City or in an apartment building and you have the luxury of a washer-dryer in your house. God bless we, you. God yes. bless you. That's right. <laughs> we here in New York live in buildings and the laundry rooms downstairs for those buildings that don't allow washer-dryers in their apartments, and mine don't, have to go down to the, laundry, the basement to do your laundry. But... Remember, not everyone has these things in their apartment, so heading down to the basement can be stressful and can be annoying and can be a whole lot of things. So my question is, is it ever okay to take someone's clothes out of the washer or dryer because the owner has not yet claimed it? You come downstairs, and you're in a hurry, and there's nothing available, and you take clothes out of the machine. Rachel, what did you say? Yes? I said said yes, but there's a big but there because... The reality is I always give a courtesy in my own building. I always give a 10 to 15 minute courtesy because that's how I would want to be treated. So, <clears throat> I mean, after 15, 20 minutes, if nobody's there, most likely they forgot, they took a nap, they went to work, and you do take it out. So I- I've never had a bad experience in a laundry room, but I think it's an interesting topic that I've never spoken about. So curious to see what the rest of the panel has to say. Well, you know, the only reason why we're reporting this today is because literally when I was doing research last week and into, you know, the weekend, uh, all I kept reading was about laundry room etiquette. So I said, I've got to ask the panel what their thought is on this because, for example, what do you do if someone steals your pants? <laughs> you come downstairs, the clothes are out of the machine, and someone steals your I, pants. I think you lost a pair of pants. I don't know. I don't well, know. yes and no, because we were discussing this outside yeah. right before we came in, and I've noticed when I take people down to laundry room in many buildings that what most people also don't understand is laundry rooms are not really run by the buildings. They're an outside vendor. So the laundry companies have contracts with the buildings to maintain them every five years, replace Mm -hmm. the machines, something like that. And lately, nine out of ten laundry rooms I've been in have cameras. Now, I don't know if these cameras are monitored or even if they have film in them. In my building, they are. And, well, there you go. (laughs) And then you might be able to find that pair of pants, and then it starts a whole – opens another can of worms. I just can't get – Fighting with your neighbors. I just can't get over the thought of someone actually taking the clothes out. They're still wet because they're impatient. Uh Put it on top of the machine, and the machine is probably dusty and dirty. Uh So now I think, okay, so these clothes have to go back in the machine because I ain't going to touch these things because they're dusty and dirty. You know, it's just a whole big drama. First of all, I do not go to my laundry room because I cannot appear in that laundry room, do not want to be seen in my laundry room. So, you know, my housekeeper does it. God love her. She's the best thing in the world. But but people do go down there. And one of the other reasons I don't go down there is because when I do, I get completely frustrated by what's going on. Somebody is huffing and puffing. I'm, I'm, Vince, I'm with still, you on that. I can't I mean, deal with the I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand why everybody does does not have a you know number under speed dial where somebody comes picks up your laundry, does it for you, and it gets dropped off folded. That's the way to go. <laughs> you sound like such one well, percenters here. Yeah, yeah but why does you know everyone what? just you know pay someone to do their laundry? Yeah, I do, I, I do, I do, I do. I have to take the flip side because I know a broker who lives in a very well known building where they do not allow washer dryers. He spends a lot of time in the laundry room getting to know his neighbors. He knows when his neighbors are down there, and he has gotten a lot of business from hanging out in the laundry there you room. Go. Yeah. All right, Brick Underground says there are nine profiles of people who just seem to show up at every open house. And we've got about a minute and a half left, and I just want to go through some of these. Nine people, nine typical profiles that show up at open house, again, here in New York City, 
every week. First is the grizzled veterans. These are the ones who have been renting forever and looking <laughs> to buy forever and ever in an eternity. And guess what they never do? They never buy, buy an apartment. Okay. The next one is the voyeur. Almost every New Yorker is guilty of indulging in New York real estate porn. A flip through the New York Times here and there. Or an hour or two on Street Easy. Everybody has to know about New York real it's estate. It's like going to an art gallery. They're like, let's just go take a look at some New York <laughs> yep. apartments. It's a pastime. Yeah. It's an absolute pastime. We, we talk about this continuously. The next one is the should, the should we stay or should we go family dilemma. These are the people with nine toes on a bridge or tunnel throwing one last Hail Mary pass at finding an acceptable city abode before heading out to the burbs. And guess what? The suburbs <laughs> always win. They always win. So when you have somebody coming in, well, I live here or we're thinking about going to the burbs take heed because they're probably not going to buy your apartment, okay? The not yet engaged couple, love this one. They are not engaged, yet she says they are, but they are committed to buying an apartment together while all of their family members and most of their friends think this is a monumental stupid idea. <laughs> and I only say that because, well, I don't say that. I get Somebody, these people all the time. And we, we, right. And, and, you know, I write, write this because I read this. We get these people all the time, and clearly they're on two separate pages. They haven't yet got onto the same page. So until they do that, don't waste my time in open house. The newly minted bachelor kicked out of his digs after a prolonged divorce battle looking for a sick pad post-settlement. Guess who's not buying an apartment? Because <laughs> he don't know what he wants to do at the moment. Um, we have to go. We've got about 20 seconds to go. So, by the way, I just wanted to say thank you one more time uh, to everybody out there who listens to Good Morning New York. Thank you again to my panel, to my staff at Voice America. And here in New York, that is our show for this week. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9, 6 a.m. Pacific time live. You can always catch the show later on the day on podcast or anytime on voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining us, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.